This question, what is my calling, has had many, many books written about it. Many articles, many sermons have been preached. Many seminars have been developed. Conferences have been focused on this, helping you discover your calling. And typically what happens when we talk about calling, we automatically think about career. How many of you, when I said, what is your calling, you thought about your career? You thought about what you're doing, right? You thought about where you're going or what you want to accomplish, the promotion you're looking for, the dream job. Because we believe that career and calling are synonymous. And, and here's what happens. If you're in a job that you love and you feel equipped for, then you feel like you've discovered your calling. But if you're in a job that you don't love, and you don't feel equipped for, and it kind of just feels like a job, or you're waiting for the promotion to what will be your calling, then you ask yourself, do I have a calling? Am I just kind of running the rat race? Am I just kind of treading water? And that's difficult to be in. And here's the problem. When you connect career and calling, things change in your life, right? How many of you, raise your hand again, how many of you have changed a career? Right? You've had a different job. You've changed jobs. Many of you have done that. Some of you are thinking about that right now, right? You're like, I need to get out of this job. The reality is the average person changes jobs or changes careers every four and a half years. And for those that are millennials, it's trending to be even less than that. Every four and a half years, you're looking for a new job. You thought it was your calling. You thought you were equipped. You loved it. And then you're like, I don't like this at all. Because your career changes, but your passions change too. You begin to think about something else that you're interested in. Maybe you don't love the career that you're in. Maybe you have kids and that changes things for you. Maybe you move to a new city and it's not what you thought. And so you're, now you're trying to discover whether or not you're in the right career and what is your calling here. Your passions change, your career changes, but your opportunities change. We have that dream job. We have those goals. We have those things that we want to accomplish in our career. But here's the problem. What if that opportunity never presents itself? What if you never get that promotion? What if you never find that job, and then you sit there and feel like, well, I, I guess I'm one of those unlucky people that doesn't have a calling. You see, career and calling are not synonymous. If that was the case, then I have changed callings many, many times. At first, I was going to be a zookeeper. told you guys this last week. That, you know, I was going to own a zoo. I was going to care for the animals. And I was like, that's unrealistic. And so I thought of a more realistic calling, which was I was going to be an NFL superstar and be in the Hall of Fame. And I was completely convinced of that. And then I realized that that's not going to be uh, the case for me. And so I said, I'll do real estate. I, I know I, I love buildings. I love people. This is perfect. And then I was in college. I was like, well, maybe I'll like, put that calling on the back burner and I'm going to be a snowboard instructor. Uh, I was planning on doing this. And I was going to go teach snowboarding. And that was about the extent of that calling. And then somehow God brought me to be a pastor. So, I mean, I've changed callings many, many times. It's like loving animals to like loving people. You know, like I've been all over the place here. But career and calling are not synonymous. They don't go hand in hand. It's important to remember that. It's important to tell yourself that. Now, listen, it is important to feel and to pray and to bring your request to God because we all desire to be in a career that we love, that we feel equipped for. That's good. But that's a micro-level calling. It's a micro-level calling. But there's a macro-level calling that oftentimes we ignore because we focus so much on the micro. 
so much on whether or not we're in the career that we're supposed to be or we're going the direction in life that we believe we're supposed to be going. And what happens is we're simply just looking at ourselves and our opportunities and wondering whether or not that's our calling. But there is a macro calling that God has for you and for me, and that's what we're going to discuss tonight. What is God's calling for you? And we see this in the life of Joseph. If you've been with us, we've been going through this series called Overcome. This is season two of it, and we're looking at Joseph. And here's what's happened. Here's a quick catch-up. Joseph's brothers hate him. They despise him, and so they sold him into slavery at a discount. He is taken from his land down to Egypt as a slave, and he's sold to this man Potiphar. And Potiphar is a high-ranking official in the Egyptian government, and so Joseph works for him as a slave. But this theme that is repeated in Joseph's life continues to show up, which is that God is with him. God is with Joseph, and because God is with him, and Joseph is relying on God and trusting in God, Joseph is successful in what he does, and Joseph blesses other people. And so he is elevated to the highest level possible in Potiphar's house, but Potiphar's life, his wife, likes Joseph. She likes what he's putting out there, and so she wants to sleep with him, as we saw last week, and she is aggressive about it. I mean, she is wanting, she's literally saying to him, come sleep with me, over and over and over and over again, and Joseph is refusing the temptation, And she's humiliated and she's angry. And so she frames him. She grabs his garment and takes his garment and she goes to her husband and she says, Potiphar, you know Joseph who you love and you think can do no wrong. He's blessing you and he's successful and all these things. He's trying to sleep with me and I have his clothes to prove it. Potiphar is furious and he sends him to prison. So he's back now in prison. He was the height of success and the highest level he could possibly reach and now he's back down in the pit and he's in prison. But in prison, God is still with him. And he becomes successful again. And he's elevated to the highest level possible in the prison where he's overseeing the other prisoners. He's still a prisoner himself, but he's overseeing the affairs of the prison. And while he's there, he has this conversation with two other prisoners. And they have these dreams. And God has given Joseph the gift of interpreting dreams. And so they come to Joseph and they share these dreams with him. And he interprets them. And he's right on both of them. And so what happens is a story fast-forwards two years later, what we picked up this evening, and Pharaoh has two dreams. And here's Pharaoh's dream. He goes to bed, and he, he falls asleep, and the first dream is this. He's standing at the bank of the Nile River, and two fat, good-looking cows come out of the bank of the Nile, actually seven, come out of the bank of the Nile, and he's like, okay, that's weird enough that I got fat cows in my dream. But they're coming out of the bank of the Nile, but then there's seven skinny cows that come out. Ugly, skinny, scrawny. And here's where the dream becomes a nightmare. The skinny cows start to eat the fat cows. Right? You just read it, you run past it. Here's what is happening there. They probably have massive teeth. Imagine, picture this right now. Skinny cows chomping on big fat cows and eating and consuming them. This is terrifying. If I had this dream, I'd never sleep again. I just know that. But Pharaoh somehow is able to go back to sleep. He goes back to sleep and he has a second dream. And the second dream is very similar. And so he wakes up and he's very concerned. He's concerned because dreams were known to be things that can predict the future. And so he's sitting here and thinking, like, what are the skinny cows with teeth that are going to eat the fat cows? This is real concerning. So he calls in all of the wise men and the magicians, and he's like, listen, here are my dreams. I need you to tell me what's going on. We've got to have a plan of action. This does not seem good. And so the wise men come in, and the magicians come in, and he shares the dream, and they have nothing. They don't know. But then the cupbearer next to Pharaoh says, 
hey, uh, Pharaoh, I know a guy. There's this Hebrew. He's in prison. And when I was there two years ago, I had a dream. And I shared my dream with him. And he interpreted it. And it was right. And so they send for Joseph. And it says he cleans himself up. You know, he cuts his hair and his beard. He gets some nice clothes. And he comes into the throne room. He comes before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh looks at him and he says, so Joseph, I hear you can interpret dreams. And look what Joseph says. Here's his response. It is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable response or favorable answer. His response is literally this. I can't. You think I can interpret dreams? I can't. It, it's, it's God working in me. It's a gift that God's given me. And, and he is going to give you a favorable response. There's two things to, to pick up here. One is that when he is promoted and when he is encouraged, he says, listen, it's, it's not my gift. I'm not like special and unique. It's God working in me. And the second thing is that he tells Pharaoh that it's going to be a, a good response. It's going to be a good interpretation. That this is going to be positive for him. And the reason that's peculiar is because you have to understand Egypt. Egypt does not believe and does not trust in the God of the Bible. They do not believe in the God that we are here to worship together tonight. It is a polytheistic country. It's a polytheistic culture. They worship the sun god Ra. They worship Osiris, the god of the afterlife and underworld. And Pharaoh himself is a god. He views himself as a god, and he is worshipped as a god. And yet, through Joseph, Joseph says that God is going to give Pharaoh, who believes himself to be a god, a favorable answer. You have to hold on to that. And so he responds, and he says, listen, here's the interpretation. The seven, there's seven fat cows represent seven years of plenty. There's going to be a great harvest. We're going to produce a lot in this country, and it's going to be wonderful, but... The problem is, after those seven years of plenty, there's going to be seven years of famine, and they're going to be destructive. I mean, they're going to be the skinny cows with the teeth. And if we're not careful, the famine is going to eat all of the plenty, all of the harvest, and it is going to be a disaster for this entire nation. And so he interprets this dream, and then we're going to pick up in verse 33, and it's very interesting what Joseph says next. Here's what he says. Verse 33 says, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for God in the cities. And let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt. So that the land may not perish through famine. There are two really important things that you need to notice here. One is this. Pharaoh does not ask Joseph for his advice. He brings Joseph into the room and he says, will you interpret the dream? And yet, after he interprets the dream, Joseph goes ahead and shares God's plan. He shares this advice. It's unsolicited advice. And this is risky. And Joseph knows it because Pharaoh is the most powerful man in all of the land and he is dangerously unpredictable. Here's how Joseph knows. 
one of the men two years ago who had a dream and Joseph interpreted it, that man was killed by Pharaoh. So he knows that Pharaoh is dangerous. And just by stating some unsolicited advice could be the end of his life in that moment. And yet he shares it, which is peculiar. And the second thing which is interesting is that he doesn't promote himself. He shares this threefold plan. He says, Pharaoh, you need to select a, a wise and discerning man to, to oversee this plan. You need an advisor over the entire plan. Then you have local overseers in each part of the country. And then we're going to establish, you should establish a national rationing system so that we begin to save food for the seven years of famine so that we can push through. But he never, ever says, and obviously I'm the man to do that. He never promotes himself. He never demeans others. He never elevates himself. And it's important that we don't run past this because he's sitting here and he's sharing this unsolicited advice and he's not promoting himself because he's concerned. The dream is concerning to Joseph too, to him, and what it may mean for him, but also what it may mean for others. And this is important for us to, to take a moment and think about because this is not our nature to have concern for others. I don't know if you're like me, but my nature is to be concerned with myself. Do you resonate with that? Our nature is me-focused. If you have children, if you've been around children, you know this. You do not have to teach children to learn the word mine. They just know it. You don't have to teach children. It's not like, wow, that child's not good at sharing. That's so peculiar, right? You don't have to teach in human beings entitlement. It's in us. We are me-focused. We are constantly thinking about our dreams and our goals, which is why there's a movement taking place right now that is huge, and it is a self-help movement. It is a $9.9 billion industry that is completely focused on self-advancement. It is focused on you and no one else. And even when it encourages you to care about others and to do things for others, it's so that you will be benefited so that you will feel better. Now, there's nothing wrong with self-advancement. I want to say, there's nothing wrong with self-help. There's nothing wrong with self-care. It's a good thing to desire to advance and to desire help and care because, listen, the reality is the reason that this is such a popular movement is because we all know that we need help. Like, we know it. And we want to advance. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the fact that it's such a huge industry reveals something about our focus I did a little experiment. Here's what I did. I Googled self-help book market. I don't know why I chose those words, but that's what I did. I Googled it, and I had 283 million results. Self-help book market. 283 million results. And then I Googled generosity book market. Generosity being something that is focused on others and giving to others, right? How many results do you think there were? 12 million. Self-help book market, 283 million results. Generosity book market, 12 million. The big discrepancy. Because we are accustomed to thinking about ourselves. We are not accustomed to thinking about others. And generosity is difficult. And we don't need statistics for this, right? We just have to ask ourselves some questions. There's some questions that I, I asked this week. What's harder going shopping for myself 
or giving away clothes that still fit and look good, right? What's harder to do? What's harder, giving to your savings account or giving to your church? What's harder, going to Starbucks and getting a coffee every morning? Because if you're like me, you like to see the stars add up, you know? It's pretty exciting. Or giving coffee to the homeless man or woman that's out there every day? Which one's harder? What's harder, celebrating your promotion or celebrating the promotion of another person that got the job that you wanted? What's harder, sharing your professional ideas that you think will benefit you or sharing the gospel? It's much harder for us to be generous. It's much harder for me to be generous. It's much easier for me to think about myself. And we all struggle with this. Right? If you were at a party at work and you were talking to another coworker and you were celebrating the promotion of someone else there, that got this managerial director role, everybody wanted the job, everybody tried out for the job, everybody interviewed for the job, and you're having this small talk as everyone's celebrating, and they say, you know what, I really wanted that job, but I'm, I'm really glad that they got it, because I think that they're the best person for the company and for those that we serve. Have you ever heard that? You heard this, I can't wait till they fail, because when they fail, I'm gonna come back in and I'm gonna save the day, you know? It's so easy to constantly think about ourselves. We think about our money, and we think about our money is there to accumulate desired goods and services, not necessarily there to, to serve other people. We think about our time and our talent, and our time and our talent is used to accomplish personal and professional goals, not necessarily to benefit and serve others. Generosity is uncommon. Here's what generosity is. I love this definition. Generosity is giving in abundance without hesitation. Giving abundantly. It's not just money. It's time and talent and creativity and opportunity and encouragement. It's giving of anything abundantly for another person without hesitation. And here's what we see in Joseph. Is that he is generous. He's generous first off with God's plan. God gives him a plan after he interprets the dream and he's been thinking about this. He's been mulling this over and he shares God's plan and he is generous. He gives abundantly and without hesitation. He is not concerned about himself. He knows what could happen. Pharaoh could look at him and say, who are you? You're a prisoner. Don't give me advice. I'm Pharaoh. I'm a God. I'll come up with the plan. I don't need you to give me a plan put him back in prison or off with his head or something. And yet he's generous with God's plan. He shares it at great risk. And he's also generous with his job, his brand new job. See, he knows something. He knows that all the wise men and all of the magicians were incapable of interpreting the dream. And so now Pharaoh is the new dream interpreter. And he's probably going to get taken out of prison. He's going to be in the courtroom. It's going to be a much better life for him. And here's the smart money. The smart, the smart money is on keep your mouth shut, Right? You just interpreted the dreams, you're good. Don't say anything. Do not mess this up. You're going to get out of prison. And yet he shares abundantly without hesitation because he knows it's going to benefit others. He is generous with his job. And then he's also generous with his leader, Pharaoh, and his other coworkers, those around. You notice that when he shares God's plan, he submits and he appeals to Pharaoh's authority. He says, Pharaoh, you need to discern who's going to lead this. This is going to be your plan. 
It may be from God and he's giving it to you, but you're Pharaoh, you're the leader, and, I, and I'm not going to demean the other people around that were incapable of coming up with a plan or interpreting the dream. He doesn't demean them. And he submits to Pharaoh's leadership. It could have been really easy for him to be like, listen, I'm going to take a risk here. I'm going to share God's plan. I'm going to be generous with my, my brand new job. But listen, here's where I'm not going to be generous. We all know I'm the person to lead this. I'm the only one that can interpret the dream. In fact, it's my plan. And I should be the one that's the advisor. He never says that. He never promotes himself. Instead, he's generous with Pharaoh as his leader. And he submits to his leadership. And he doesn't demean his co-workers. And this is important to note. Generosity is not opposed to confidence. Because here's what's going to happen next. Pharaoh is going to look at Joseph and he's going to appoint him as the leader. He's going to say, you make the most sense. So what it says here in verse 37, it says, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, we have experienced something in you, Joseph. It's the spirit of God. In Hebrew, that word is ruah, which means wind for spirit. So Pharaoh is saying that we have felt God. You can't see wind, but you can feel it. When I've been around you just for this short moment of time, and I've seen your faith and your courage and your generosity and your concern for others, I have experienced God. Think about Pharaoh who believes himself to be God saying that. And he says, you're, you're the natural choice. You need to lead this effort. It says that Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people and shall order yourselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And the reason that generosity is not opposed to confidence is that Joseph doesn't say, no, 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 I shouldn't, you know, someone else. No, he says, no, yeah, I'll take the job. I believe that God is going to work through me. And he takes the job and he does the job excellently. He's not passive. He doesn't doubt himself. He does it with excellence and he is confident, but he's not arrogant and he's not self-promoting. When I was thinking about Joseph's example this week, I was asking myself this question. Why would he take this risk? Why would he be generous? Why would he care at all? Just interpret the dream and keep your mouth shut and get out of prison and you'll have like, you know, a decent life. Don't risk it. Why would he do that? The second half of verse 36 tells us, it says that Joseph says, so that the land may not perish through famine. You see, he's concerned about people. He cares about people because he knows what this will do to people. He is concerned for the common good. And here's why this is really important to notice. It's not as if he is in a place where he identifies with the people. He's not an Egyptian. These are not his people. In fact, he's had a really rough experience here. He has been enslaved. He has been framed. He has been discriminated against. He has been put in prison. This has been a rough road. Egyptians and the Egyptian culture are not his people, and yet he still cares for them. Have you ever thought like that? Have you ever gone to work and thought, these aren't my people? I go to work, I do my job, and then I go home to my people. Or I, I go out on Friday night with my people. 
or I come to church with my people. But the people in this city, the people in my office, those are not my people. It's easy to think about. Think like that, isn't it? And yet Joseph doesn't think like that, and we would not fault him if he did. He is concerned for them. They don't worship the same God. They have a totally different culture and totally different interests. In fact, they have treated him poorly, and yet he cares for them. And he is concerned for them, even Pharaoh. And the reason is, is because Joseph's calling was to serve others. His circumstances changed time and time again in his life, but his calling to serve others remained the same. When he was a shepherd, his calling was to serve his father and care for the sheep. When he was a slave, his calling was to serve Potiphar and his interests. When he was a prisoner, his calling was to serve the other prisoners. And now that he's second in command over all of Egypt and leading God's plan to care for the people there so that they don't die out in the famine, his calling is to serve an entire country. His calling has never changed, though his circumstances have changed. His micro-calling has changed many times. But his macro-calling has remained the same. Tim Keller said this. He said, our daily work can be a calling only if it's reconceived as God's assignment to serve others. Your micro-calling can be a calling, even if you don't love the job, even if you don't feel fully equipped, even if it's your, not your dream job, it can be a calling if you really understand your macro calling, which is to serve others. Joseph's name has a really interesting meaning. His name means, may he add. This was his calling, right, to add to others. Time and time and time again, we see that God is with Joseph and he adds to the lives of others. He blesses others. He serves others. His calling was to add to the lives of those around him. And that is your calling too. That is your macro calling. Though your micro calling and circumstances may change, your macro calling is to add to the lives of others. First Peter tells us this. First Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift and you've received many gifts, Use it for yourself and your interest to accomplish your dreams. doesn't say that, right? It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You have been given gifts that are grace to you, and you are to use them not for yourself but for others. Paul picks up on this too, and he says in Galatians 5, 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for yourself, but through love serve one another. If you have found freedom in faith in Christ because you know that you have not earned salvation, that you have been loved because Jesus' death and his resurrection, you've been offered this free gift of relationship with God through faith in the person and the work of Christ, you are free. You don't have to be a certain level of moral standard. You don't have to be really religious. You don't have to have it all together. You can make mistakes because you're forgiven and you're free in Christ. And when you're free, you're to use your freedom and the gifts that God has given you, not for yourself, but for others. And here's the only way that we're able to do that. We're not gonna do that by reminding ourselves every morning, serve other people, because we will default back to serving ourselves. 
The only way that we can live out our macro calling of serving others is if we are reminding ourselves constantly of God's mercy. Romans 12 tells us that. Romans 12 says this. In light of God's mercy, present your lives as a living sacrifice. That's really important. It doesn't just say present your lives as a living sacrifice. This is your true worship. It says in light of God's mercy, as you remind yourself of God's mercy, that he is with you in the pit and in the peak, in your failure and your success. He is with you and he loves you and he is merciful to you. When you remind yourself of that, it fuels you and it changes your desires and it helps you to understand your macro calling so that in your micro calling you might actually serve others. Because when you're reminded of God's mercy, you're reminded of God's mercy demonstrated perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us that when he says this. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but say it with me, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's calling perfectly demonstrated. This is God's mercy that Jesus has come to serve. He has come to give his life for you and for me so that we can be in perfect relationship with God and not feel the pressure to earn it because we're not going to be able to. We're going to focus on ourselves. And when you remind yourself of God's mercy, it empowers you and it gives you the desires of God and the strength to go out each day and to care for others, to be generous with others to use your gifts and your time and your talent and your treasure and your creativity and your opportunities and your encouragement for the benefit of others, for the common good, even for people that you don't really feel like are your people. Because Christ has come to love all of us when we were not his people. And yet he was generous. And he was merciful at the very end of the chapter, it says that Pharaoh changes Joseph's name to Zaphonis Panea. And here's what that means. Picture this. Jo- Pharaoh believes himself to be a god, changes Joseph's name to this. God lives and speaks. That's incredible. Because he saw and he felt the spirit of God in him as he was generous and as he was faithful and as he was merciful and as he cared for people that were not his people. Pharaoh looks at Joseph and says, God lives and speaks. And here's my prayer for you and for me, is that we would wake up each day and pray a very simple prayer. And that's this. God, would you remind me of your mercy? Would you help me to realize the gifts that you have given me are for others. And when you enable people to see that you live and speak in me, that's our macro calling. Paul puts it really well and he says this, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal that he lives and speaks through you. That's your calling. Let's pray.